So, are we ready? All right. <laughs> How does this work here? Okay. Yeah. Well, what is the gospel? The good news. Well, that begs the question. If it's good news, what's the good news? <clears throat> All right, things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's a good answer. <clears throat> but, of course, it's a short answer. When we look at the world around us and consider that we have many other denominations that call themselves Christian and they purport to preach the gospel, what is it that they're preaching? You've talked to people, what have they told you? Pardon? The cross of Christ, right? The cross of Christ. Believe and be saved. I know that's one I hear. Anything else? Yes, in your heart, right? In your heart. Going to heaven, right? That seems to be part of it, for sure. <clears throat> the question that I have with respect to these things is, you know, does it make sense that this, this gospel, the, the one that we hear out in the world, is the same one that was taught in the first century? When you hear these things spoken of as the gospel, do you think that those are the very things that would grab the hearts and minds of the people of the first century who were primarily Jews at the beginning, are these the things that they heard and said, oh, yes, this is the good news? Well, I don't think so. And so what I'd like to do is, uh, for at least the first couple of days here this week, is to try and take a look at what things led up to the promulgation of the gospel in the first century. And what was the mind? and the attitude of the people who first heard it and why were they so enraptured with it. Um, I see being tethered here isn't all it's cracked up to be. This is another one that I um, <clears throat> saw on a Bumper sticker, you've maybe seen it yourself. No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. Well, there's some truth to that. But again, is it, what is it? What is it that, that grabs you about this?
Where I would like to start is the kingdom. If we're going to talk about, you know, a kingdom, because um, as we believe, the kingdom has to do with the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, then it would be good for us to look at the Jewish kingdom because they have a history of kingdoms and saviors and we would like to know what good news indeed would capture the hearts and minds of those of the first century. So let us first begin with a look at David and Solomon. Now David, as we know, was called a man after God's own heart. And unlike the king that preceded him, King Saul, he was a proven king. That is to say, he didn't just come to the throne immediately upon uh, election or anointing. He spent the whole, well, as much of the period of, of Saul um, that he was alive, anyway, working as um, a shepherd, first of sheep and then of people. We remember the Lord Jesus telling Peter three times, feed my sheep. This is what David did. And during that time, he grew closer to his God. He um, also gained the hearts of the people of Israel. During that time where he was feeding the sheep of Israel, he showed himself to be a man of principle. We recall that uh, at least two occasions, he had an opportunity to kill Saul, who evilly was dogging him, looking to take David's life, and, and for no good reason. And yet, he would not do it. He would not put his hand on the Lord's anointed. Even earlier than that, in the case of Goliath, who did he depend on, upon for uh, help and strength? It was the Lord. The whole idea that some giant should come out and curse the people of Israel and blaspheme the name of God was just unbelievable to him that anyone could even allow it to go on. The idea that God would not be with him to help him um, was something that David rejected. He, he knew for sure that God would, would be with him. Now, at the end of David's reign, we see there were a couple of things that were involved, uh, which um, included the God that he worshipped. He, of course, had had, prior to this, some promises that were made to him regarding the establishment of his kingdom before his face and that the son 
um, would be one who would reign on the kingdom in an everlasting uh, fashion. So when David came to the end of his time, he set up the course of things for his son Solomon. And uh, there are a couple of things that I think that we should recall, and, and that is that the Lord was involved in both the temple that was going to be built and in the selection of his son. If we look at First Chronicles 28, uh, at verse 5, we see the, David saying to the people, And of all my sons, for the Lord hath given me many sons, he hath chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Later in the same chapter, it, verse 11, it says that David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch of the temple and of its houses and of its treasuries and of its upper chambers and of its inner parlors and of the place of the mercy seat and the pattern of all that he had by the spirit of the courts of the house of the Lord and of all the chambers round about and of the treasuries of the house of God and of the treasuries of the dedicated things. Also, for the courses of the priests and for the Levites and for all the work of the service of the house of the Lord and for all the vessels of the service in the house of the Lord. So the pattern was given to him by the Spirit. And so he goes the way of his ancestors and falls asleep in death. And Solomon sits on the throne. Now we're told uh, in 1 Chronicles 29 at verse 23 that Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David his father and prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. Solomon sits on the throne of the Lord, the kingdom of God, in a sense, and this king, as we know, was one who prayed for and received wisdom in a measure that none before him had ever seen. He went through with the plans that his father David had given him, and he built the temple. And things went well for a while, and then things began to decline. And eventually the kingdom split, and uh, of course we have this graphic up here that shows where things went. But the thing I want us to consider here at the outset is that the, the kingdom under David and Solomon and some of the kings afterward, were, uh, it, it began in a God-centered way. It was all you could want, at least uh, at that time, in terms of a great start to a kingdom. But it didn't last. And Israel, around 700 B.C., went into Assyrian captivity, that is to say the northern tribes, and Judah, about 100 years later, uh, went into Babylonian captivity. And they went into captivity because they went astray. 
they had a great start, but things didn't go well later on. They drifted off into idolatry. Jeremiah, just prior to the captivity, uh, gives a scathing message uh, in the time of Josiah, which you can see was near the end. In Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah records, The Lord also said unto me in the days of Josiah, this is beginning at verse 6, the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, Turn thou unto me. But she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw, when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass, through the lightness of her harlotry, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with trees. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly saith the Lord. And the Lord saith unto me, The backsliding Israel hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah. And so even though there was... Uh, really not much of anything good could be said about the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, in the end, I think under the principle of to whom much is given, much is required, condemnation of an even greater sort fell upon Judah, who did not learn from the tragedy of the northern kingdom, but instead went ahead with their own backsliding and turned away from the Lord God. So they went into captivity. Now, <clears throat> they always say that, I don't know who they is, but they always say that you don't know what you've lost till it's gone. Now, we have here some of the attributes of a kingdom. And at the time of the, uh, of the captivity, captivity of Israel into uh, Assyrian captivity and and Judah into Babylonian captivity, they had time to reflect on this. Prior they had had a king, a godly king, uh, at the beginning, um, after Saul, of course, with David. They had a domain, that is, they had a land that was promised, a land that was promised actually to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they had been given um, an opportunity to dwell in that land. And the people had themselves been subject of the government in that land. And we know that the government you know, it covers several things. It, it is a means whereby 
laws are made in some cases, like in this country, in their particular case, the laws were given to them on Mount Sinai in the wilderness. The government is also the means of enforcing things. And we know that under the law, there were uh, provisions for things that had to do with things other than worship. So if uh, there was a theft involved or, or murder involved, there, these were provisions that were um, encompassed in the law of Moses. You're also looking for some sort of justice under the government, some place to go and bring your problems, your um, issues, so that they might be decided by some arbiter. And of course, you're looking for upright men and women to be the office holders in the government. And of course, a kingdom is no good if there's nothing for you to do. You, you have to have some employment. And the thing I think uh, that's often uh, missed is the whole business of worship and the idea of God-centeredness. In the case of Israel, they were a special case. Whether they were God-centered or not depended on whether they existed or not. God did not let them exist uh, indefinitely in an ungodly fashion. So worship was necessary. And um, an adherence and an, a knowledge and understanding of the laws um, was a requirement. In so doing, then, they would have a sense of community. They had something that they shared, much like we do when we're here at this Bible school. We have a, a, a community of faith and belief, and there are all sorts of differences among us, and yet um, we draw on the, the strengths and hopefully not the weaknesses of our, uh, of our brothers and our sisters. So the thing is that when they go into captivity, now they as subjects, of course, some of them are dead, uh, but some of them have gone off to live in another place. They, their king has been taken into captivity. They're no longer in the land. Um, their government has been changed to a government by the um, power that has overcome them. And they, uh, their employment is going to be at the will of that particular government. And their worship is going to have to change. Well, They'll have to do, or they'll have to consider, what will they do? What will they do as far as worship is concerned? Are they going to be able to keep the law? Yes? No? No? Why not? Pardon? Well, they got pagan rulers. All right, but so... That's a big problem. Um, they were supposed to go three times in a year to the place where God had chosen to place his name. And that was Jerusalem. And that was going to be impossible. Um, how about bringing first fruits of the land? That was one of the things that they had to do. Um, that would 
be very difficult since uh, they're no longer in the land that God had given them and maybe wouldn't even have land um, as many times throughout history they were not even allowed to own property. Well, it would be it would be an issue and so that would be something that they would have to deal with. Um, they, had the, they had a taste of the kingdom. Now they had gone off into captivity. And in Babylon, this was going to last uh, 70 years. And so they had to determine how it is that they would worship. They didn't have the temple. They no longer had the uh, Ark of the Covenant available to them. Um, they, the whole fashion in which uh, daily sacrifices were to be made at the temple, that was out. All of these things would, were now a big disruption, and they would have to determine how they would, how they would worship. Um, we have some idea of some of the things that were done. Um, just as examples in Daniel, we know in Daniel 1 <coughs> that Daniel, who was himself a captive, When uh, he was chosen as someone who would be um, a possible advisor to the, to the king, uh, they put him on a diet that he didn't think he could handle. So in verse 8 of chapter 1, it says, Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's food or with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he re requested the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And we remember what happened then. He went on a, on a diet of uh, vegetables, and, and it worked out. On another occasion, we know uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were uh, required to bow down to an image that Nebuchadnezzar had made. And they decided that they would not defile themselves by doing such a thing and received the ultimate test in being placed in the burning, fiery furnace. And then again in Daniel 6, we recall those who were jealous of Daniel and the position that he had uh, been able to acquire by favor with the king and they uh, decided to find some way that they might bring that favor to an end and so they um, had the king post an edict that no one should pray to anyone but the king within a certain period of time and Daniel continued to pray three times a day as he always had, toward Jerusalem. So we see that these were some things that they decided that they would do uh, in an attempt not to defile themselves. They depended upon God's faithfulness to his promises, that it would only be 70 years, and then that they would be able to return. And we know how Daniel prayed for that. And then they looked for God's grace to cover the rest. And really, this is not a whole lot different than what we do. This is, it's thought that synagogues uh, began about this time as a place to come together 
and to consider the law. And really, they would have to, do, to consider the law much as we do here. They, they would not be able to execute everything in the law as was required. And um, as we know, <coughs> Paul says in the New Testament um, that if you fail in any part of the law, then you are condemned because that was the way it was set up uh, uh, on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, the blessings and the curses. And if you don't, if you don't obey all of it, then you're condemned under that which you don't do. Now there was a return from exile. There was a return from exile because the, the power changed again. Um, no longer was Babylon the controlling influence, but now the Persians had conquered the Babylonians. And again, under God's grace, after the 70 years, some of the people of Israel returned to the land. And a new generation, with some of the old, came back. And things weren't exactly the same as they were initially. There were enemies in the land. As we recall, um, both the Assyrians and the Babylonians had um, taken people out and put other people in. And those other people were still there. But they had received, eventually, um, the right to rebuild their temple and to rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. And to reestablish the worship of Yahweh in the land. But they didn't have their own king. They had a subordinate governor. They did have their own priests. And they were able to uh, make do. They were given all the provisions that they needed to begin to reestablish their worship. And um, so things were good. Things were looking up. They weren't the same as they were initially, but... Um, they had had a taste of kingdom before, and now they were getting another one. So as we see, uh, under the Persians, things went along until um, about 320 B.C. And at that time, again, we have a change in power. The Greeks come in. And Alexander the Great, when he swept through, um, really had no warfare that they had to deal with. They peacefully yielded to Alexander. But of course, Alexander, uh, in all his greatness, um, he did it in a very short time because he died at a very early age. And then this great kingdom of his um, was divided. And initially, there was a, an attempt to 
keep the empire intact. Uh, but that didn't, as the warfare betwe between the generals, and it was between the generals because he only had a half-witted brother, and his son was not yet born when he died. And I sort of, I apologize for this map. I could have gotten a better one, but it's the one I had, so. But basically, um, as we know in Daniel, it went to the four winds. And two of those winds were the empire of the Seleucids on the north and the Ptolemies on the south. And um, they appear to be the ones that are described in Daniel 11. Now, this brings uh, some new issues. Initially, most all of uh, Palestine, including Jerusalem, went to the Ptolemies. So they were under the Egyptian influence. The Seleucids on the north, however, also coveted that area. There were some pragmatic reasons. Um, the idea of a buffer between themselves and uh, their enemy. And, and you, you kind of wonder why they're enemies anyway, because they're both part of the Greek empire. Um, it's Greek influence from the north or the south. And actually, um, um, the first ruler of the Seleucids uh, had been a, a good buddy and an ally of Ptolemy in Egypt when they were trying to separate the kingdom into its different parts. But nonetheless, um, they were enemies. In Israel, there was also, um, there were olives and grapes and figs, all superior to those in Egypt. Uh, that was another reason the Ptolemies wanted to keep control of this area. So there were some life choices for the people who lived in the land now. And you, I mean, we haven't had this situation in the United States. I suppose if we were American Indians or something, we might. Uh, but here, we, here you are, you're there doing your own thing, and then the power climate changes again, and uh, you've got the upper powers are warring across your area. And so you have to determine how it is that you're going to live. Uh, the guy from the north comes, you know, he wants to come into the south, and he says uh, as he comes through, hey, support me. If you support me, give me some, you know, provisions for my army and whatnot, then, uh, then I'll do something for you. I'll give you a little autonomy. You want to worship your own God? Fine. We can do that. So are you going to do it? I mean, if you win, fine. If you lose, it's not so good. They want you to pick a side, and it's not so easy. Over time, uh, we come to 
under the Seleucids, by the time, um, by about 200 BC, uh, Antiochus III, also known as Antiochus the Great, finally takes over. And it appears that the people in Judea at this time were, were looking for a change. They backed him over the Ptolemies. And the Seleucids won. And Antiochus III made a promise. He said, look, um, since you helped me out, um, you can have ritually clean sacrifices, you can keep your religion, and you can have a, a limited autonomy. And they thought that was wonderful. And, uh, and they went with that. However, Antiochus III um, also took that area up, all up into Asia Minor, which is Turkey today, in an effort to stave off this other looming power, the Romans. And he didn't do so well. And as soon as he lost, really, the Seleucid Empire was on the decline. Antiochus IV then came to power, also known as Epiphanes. And he was different than his father. He decided to break the promise his father had made to the Jews. And he decided that what they needed to do was make everything Greek. We'll Hellenize everything. We'll change the temple over. You can still worship in your temple, but it'll be now a temple to Zeus or Apollos. Later, um, he became very upset with the Jews. And that was because the Jews were not very happy with the whole idea. Although there were some Jews that were willing to go along with this. There was a high priest that was appointed, and uh, he was willing to go ahead and make this a temple to a, 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 a Greek temple. But the Jews had uh, looked for some help with the Ptolemies uh, to try and keep Antiochus from doing all this. And um, and that time they lost. And Antiochus was not happy that they had backed, uh, looked to the Ptolemies for backing. And he came in and he swept through, he polluted the temple, he sacrificed swine on the altar, and things were not good at all. So then we have what um, came about with the, what is known as the Maccabean Revolt. Change the slide here. Now they had some different choices to make. The Maccabean Revolt started when a an appointed high priest was uh, about to make a sacrifice for um, an idol, essentially, in the temple. And Mattathias of the Hasmonean family couldn't take it. He stepped forward and um, killed the priest, and he also killed 
the uh, Greek officer, the Seleucid officer that was there. And um, now, of course, you've got an extreme situation. Um, and if you're an ordinary citizen, you've got to say to yourself, well, what is it I'm going to do? How am I going to live in the land now? Am I, am I going to go with the flow with the Greeks here? Or if I want to do what's right and follow God, um, am I going to go with these guys that seem insane? They've you know, started killing off these other people. Well, we might note that um, Malachi, who was a writer after the return, um, did not have too many good things to say about the priests. And now, O ye priests, this is Malachi 2, this commandment is for you. If ye will not hear, and if ye will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already, because ye do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces and the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it. And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear with which he feared me and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Well, initially, <coughs> they followed in the steps of Levi. In the Maccabean revolt under Mattathias and Judas Maccabeus, Maccabeus supposedly meaning the hammer. So Judas the hammer. <coughs> Mattathias died in the year that the revolt began, and Judas picked up in his father's footsteps and um, essentially went to war. It was sort of a guerrilla warfare, but he had great success. <coughs> Many generals were sent down. But of course, the, uh, they were also trying to work with the weaknesses that were now in the Seleucid Empire because the Seleucids were having problems with other countries. They were having problems with the Parthians uh, to their north. And so um, at any time they thought they might exploit the weaknesses, um, the Jews did that. Uh, eventually Judas um, died in battle, and um, Jonathan, his brother, came to the head, and he was able to expand the area that they had. No longer was it little Judea, it was now a larger area. Later, Jonathan was captured, and his brother, Simon, continued, and the conquest still went on. Eventually, Simon was murdered, uh, I think he was poisoned, as I recall, by his son-in-law. And uh, actually, one of his other sons was also murdered, and he wanted to kill John Hyrcanus, his other son, but uh, was missed him. And so John Hyrcanus now came to be the leader. And he conquered even more. After John Hyrcanus, Aristobulus came. He reigned, I think, only a year. Um, but he did well in terms of gaining territory. 
And then his uh, rule uh, was succeeded by that of Alexander Janius, who completed really the conquest of nearly all the land that they had originally had under uh, the kings of, uh, of Israel. Then we see the one in red. That's the time really when the power change up above happened again. When the Romans under Pompey uh, came looking and knocking on the door. And at the time that happened, there was a civil war between two of the sons of this Hasmonean dynasty, Hyrcanus II and Aristobulus II. Hyrcanus II was thought to be the weak one. And um, because of that, a man by the name of Antipas thought he would be a good guy to back because he, he felt he could uh, arrange it so that he could keep Aristobulus, the stronger the one, out of the high priesthood. I, I didn't mention that um, Judas and Mattathias and all of them were Levites. They were of the priestly order. Hyrcanus uh, wanted to be high priest and so did Aristobulus. And uh, they couldn't agree. And so Antipas was able, a very, very able politician, was able, able to uh, leverage his influence with the Nabataeans who were down in the area where Edom used to be. Uh, and he was an Idumean, which is a, um, basically a, 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 um, a son of Esau. He was able to take, go to King Aretas in Petra and get his help to keep Aristobulus out of the priesthood. And then Hyrcanus, because he was rather weak, uh, he was able to manipulate. He also made friends with the Romans. And, um, and even when there were changes in the Roman order of things, he was able to make friends as need be, and his, he had great influence. One of his sons was Herod I, or Herod the Great. And Herod um, was actually one of uh, four sons, but there were two that actually had power. Herod was one, and um, his brother Faisal was another one. Faisal had Jerusalem, but Faisal later died and was killed. And um, Herod, again, like his father, was able to go to Rome, curry some favor, and uh, get himself appointed as king of Judea or king of the Jews. He had married one of the daughters of the Hasmonean dynasty, although he had other wives. But he had done this in an effort to try and uh, curry some favor with the people. The, all of this brings us to the time of Christ, which we'll take a look at tomorrow. But what I want you to think about then is we've got this sort of historical background. And let's, I, if I can just take a couple of minutes here, I just had one other thing I wanted to show 
life under the Romans at this point had some pros and some cons. And you would find people in Judea who would line up on either side of this. They were free to make a living, but they were taxed heavily. They had priests that were Levites, that were in the temple, a temple actually that Herod was in the midst of uh, revamping. But the priests were appointed. That was a problem, of course, when you look for help outside of God, that somebody else is going to have to help get things working, then somebody else is going to make some appointments. They were free to worship, but there were Roman influences all over the land. They weren't slaves, but they weren't citizens either. And they did have national security. I mean, they had the Roman government behind them. But they also had an Idumean king and a Roman governor over themselves. So there were things that, these were all the sorts of things that they had to think about as we looked for the approach of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ and the beginning of the preaching of the gospel regarding the Lord Jesus Christ.